a lot of people would be quite shocked by what's going on in politics. I think increasingly we're kind of aware of the fact that there is a crisis within policing and the fact that so many police officers have been accused of sexual misconduct, for example. But I think a lot of people don't recognise because we buy into this bad apple narrative, these isolated incidents that are deliberately used to throw us off the track of recognising a systemic problem. I think a lot of people would be really shocked to know that almost 10% of all our MPs are currently under investigation themselves for sexual misconduct. 56 MPs. I think that's really, really shocking, including former cabinet ministers. I think people have this kind of perception of the justice system and the court and Westminster as if they're sort of somehow immune or untouchable. And I think recognising that even within really institutions of power and systems of power that this form of inequality can exist is really important because otherwise it just flies under the radar. Welcome back to The Fix. Every week, we interview thought leaders, world leaders, academics, business leaders, activists, and ordinary people who are taking action to build workplaces that truly work for everyone. I think what really sets The Fix apart from other podcasts is that we're substantive. Kelly Thompson, my co-host, is an expert on employment and equality law. And those of you who know me, Michelle King, I've just completed my PhD on inequality at work and I'm about to publish my second book on the topic. What this means is when you listen to The Fix, you're not simply listening to a conversation. We want to inspire you to not only think differently about inequality at work, but we also want to share the latest research, science, facts that will really help you take the right action to tackle inequality. Because Kelly and I have a bias to action and that means we are going to share our takeaways from each episode and the specific actions that you can take to build workplaces that truly value difference. So quick one before we start, if you like our podcast, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review. You can also sign up to get our newsletter at www.thefixpodcast.org. All right, let's get on with today's episode. I'm really excited about this week's podcast because it features a former guest, Laura Bates, who is the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, an ever-increasing collection of over 200,000 testimonies of gender inequality with branches in 25 countries worldwide. Laura regularly writes for The Guardian, Telegraph and The New York Times, amongst others, and she's won the British Press Award for her journalism in 2015. Laura has written numerous books with her latest, Fix the System, Not the Woman, which is near and dear to my heart with this message. I really believe inequality exists in policies, processes and practices, which is why we need to fix workplaces and systems rather than women. If you're not convinced by this statement, then I want you to take a minute and consider if all men were to disappear for 24 hours, what women would do. A few months ago, people on social media were sharing responses to this question. For most men, nothing really would change if women disappeared for 24 hours. But for women, everything would change. Women shared how they would run late at night, go out wearing whatever they wanted. Basically, all accounts from women referenced this idea that women would be more free to live their lives if men disappeared. Women wouldn't have to clutch their keys walking to their car in the dark, or try to stay on well-lit roads, or make sure they walk on crowded streets to avoid dark alleys at all costs, or cross roads when they see a male that might be perceived as a threat, or call a friend or relative when they're walking home, watch their drinks when they're at a party, or any of the millions of actions that women take on a daily basis to stay safe. 
Women cannot solve an equality they don't create. It simply isn't and will never be women that need to be fixed. According to the academic John Sturman, this tendency to blame the person rather than the system is so strong that psychologists call it the fundamental attribution error. The challenging reality is that we tend towards fixing women because it's a lot easier to blame the victim than to fix the system. Just consider what happened in the period after Sarah Everard vanished in Clapham, South London. Metropolitan Police Officer Wayne Cousins was ultimately convicted of murdering Sarah. But in the days following her disappearance, it was reported that the police were advising women in Clapham not to go out alone. This advice was met with enormous backlash. Swathes of women across social media expressed frustration with a focus on women being responsible for altering their behaviour rather than a focus on concrete ways to make women feel safer. CGTN Europe reports that 188 women were killed in the UK last year in the majority of the cases by a partner or ex-partner. 1.6 million women in the UK reported being victims of domestic abuse in the last year. And globally, one in three women has experienced physical or sexual violence. No amount of changing or blaming women will alter the everyday threat of violence that exists. Here Laura shares why she wants to shed light on the systemic changes that we need to make to tackle all forms of gender inequality. I think it just felt like there was this weird kind of dichotomy, I suppose, where on the one hand, we were talking more and more about gender inequality, and that was a good thing. And there is obviously this kind of international conversation happening about sexism. So we'd kind of moved on from my first book, Everyday Sexism, which was published in 2014. But what was really frustrating was that when that conversation happened, instead of leading to people saying, okay, here are the system changes that we need to fix the problem, people were looking at the problem and going, well, what can women do? do to make themselves better? What can women do to keep themselves safer? As if that was the solution. And I found that so infuriating, even in the face of very extreme news. So even after women's deaths, for example, when Sarah Everard died, a police and crime commissioner said that she shouldn't have submitted to the false arrest that was used to imprison her. We had police knocking on doors in Clapham telling women that they shouldn't be going out on their own at night. After Bobby Ann McLeod was murdered, the male leader of her city council Council said that we shouldn't be putting ourselves in unsafe and compromising positions. After Sabina Nessa died, 200 attack alarms were given out to women in the local area. And one of the top Google searches was what was Sabina Nessa wearing? So I felt really frustrated that even when we acknowledge sexism and male violence against women, even then we still look to women for the solutions. And there is an individualization of this that we are all kind of groomed into from our childhoods. You know, well, what did you do? Were you leading him on? What were you wearing at the time? What were you doing there? Well, why didn't you just ask for the promotion? Why didn't you speak up for yourself a bit more? And all of the evidence shows that none of those strategies works. We know, for example, that women who experience assault have nothing in common in terms of their dress or location or time of day. It's the perpetrator. That's the common thread, a perpetrator. We know, for example, that women in the workplace who step up and ask for promotion and kind of promote themselves are seen as abrasive and punished as a result. So really, the women aren't the problem. And I wanted to try and focus our attention instead on the systemic failings where the problem really is coming from. When the approach to solving inequality focuses on individuals rather than systems, what ends up happening is that we hold this idea of the perfect victim. 
The idea that if a woman did everything just right, walked home at the right time, wore the right clothes, said the right things, then the sexual assault and the acts of violence would never happen. So the blame then rests not with the person engaging in sexual violence, but with the victim for not being good enough. The women were murdered the day before and the day after Sarah Everard, but nobody has heard their names. Even the names of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, two black women who were murdered in a park in very similar circumstances to Sarah Everard a year before, many people didn't hear or know their names until they were repeated in the wake of Sarah Everard's death. Her death received a huge amount more press coverage and more police attention. And all of this stems from the idea that in our society, we are very comfortable with accepting the idea that women should be responsible for protecting themselves and for preventing male violence. And to see that, we have to kind of look at things that we're so used to that it's hard for us to recognise them. So if, for example, you reel off the list of rules that women follow in their day-to-day lives that we never actually stop and talk about, but that we all know, carrying our keys between our fingers when we come home at night, crossing the street. If we see a big group of men ahead of us, don't wear your hair in a ponytail, someone might grab it. Don't wear a short skirt. Don't wear heels in case you need to run. Have headphones on so you don't hear people shouting at you, but don't have headphones on because you might need to hear if someone comes up behind you. Don't take the wrong way home. Don't take the quickest route. Take the long route around the park that's better lit. Better still take a minicab, but don't take the wrong kind of minicab because that's on you. You know, dance in groups, go to the bathroom together, text each other, when you get home safe. The list is really endless. And yet for many men, they'd be shocked to know that these are things that we think about on a day-to-day basis. And you can see that really starkly in the way in which even in grief, we talk about women's deaths. So after Sarah Everard died, tragically, in my opinion, the thing that trended around the world was she did all the right things and she was just walking home. And after Ashling Murphy was murdered in, in Ireland, the thing that trended was she was just going for a run. And while I know that nobody shared those phrases with deliberate malice, and I know it was just an expression of grief, I still think it's really stark because what that grief says is these cases are unbearable because these women weren't asking for it. And that makes it particularly tragic because if they had been drunk at two o'clock in the morning or wearing a short skirt or meeting someone that was going to pay them for sex or on drugs or whatever, then as a society collectively, without even necessarily realizing it, we kind of go, oh, well, you know. She she should have known. What did she expect? And you can see it in our acceptance of things, preventative measures. So when the police knocked on doors in Clapham after Sarah disappeared and said to women, don't go out on your own at night, everybody kind of nodded along and said, oh, you know, it's just common sense, isn't it? Trying to keep them safe. It's not blaming them. But if police had knocked on doors in Clapham that night and told men a woman has disappeared and a man's done something to us. So none of you can go out alone at night because we don't know which one of you it is. We can't trust you. People would have been outraged by that, you know, assault on male civil liberties. So as a society, we start from a baseline of being really quite comfortable with the idea of constraining all women's civil liberties based on the action of a small minority of men. And that's very difficult to turn around when we're used to seeing even police posters that say things like, women, here's how you can protect yourselves. Don't be a victim. How to avoid being a victim of rape and so on. So we are starting from this really skewed perspective. And that's what we have to dismantle, I think, before we can begin to move forward. Another response to acts of sexual violence and assault is the phrase or hashtag, not all men. The hashtag began as a catchphrase among men's rights activists in response to discussions which they saw as portraying men, or all men, as misogynists and sexual abusers. 
The logic is this. Gender inequality exists not because of all men, just a few bad apples or exceptions. Therefore, we shouldn't ask all men to change or hold all men accountable for the inequality, just the bad ones. The problem with this argument is it ignores the powerful position that all men are in to solve inequality that some men create, ignore, perpetuate and benefit from. All men can hold each other accountable for everyday sexism, discrimination, harassment and sexual assault that some men engage in. All men can take action to advance, support, champion and further gender equality by holding all men accountable for their behaviour. We need all men to help solve the problem of gender inequality that some men create. What's interesting about that is, of course, it's not all men. Nobody is saying it's all men, except the men saying not all men. So I think there's a real defensiveness around this conversation, which is frustrating because it obscures what we're really talking about. But I think it's really important we recognise a spectrum of ideas and behaviours, which essentially are connected and always have been. But in our society, we don't accept that. So in our society, we'll talk about rape and domestic violence as serious issues, but we will also put a woman on the front page of one of our biggest newspapers with the words feminazi and block capitals above her head if she dares to speak up about workplace sexual harassment. We will call a woman hysterical or overreacting or uptight if she objects to catcalls and wolf whistles, which are constantly brushed off as just a bit of fun. And what I see in the Everyday Sexism Project, which of course collects all of these different forms of gender inequality and violence and harassment side by side, is the connection between them. And it doesn't mean that one leads directly to another. And it doesn't mean that they're all the same or anyone is saying that they should all be treated in the same way. What it does mean is that they have in common a power imbalance, essentially, a gendered norm, which is at the root of both. So if we say catcalls and wolf whistles are not a big deal, it's just a joke, women should brush them off, they shouldn't make a fuss, What we're really saying is women's bodies and girls' bodies, because of course catcalling and wolf whistling starts from such a young age, are public property in public space. And girls have to accept that from childhood because it happens more when they're in school uniform than when they're not. And of course, what that creates in our public space is a power dynamic that men are in control and in charge, that there's nothing women can do about it, that their bodies are essentially there for male ownership and comment, whether they like it or not. And if we set that up as a kind of baseline in our society, then of course that's going to influence the way that we think about women, the way that we consider it acceptable to treat women and the hierarchy of the sexes, which will then have a knock-on effect in the workplace or in the home. And you can see that really clearly in our entries. So a linguistic analysis of our entries at Everyday Sexism shows that the same gendered slurs, you know, slut, slag, or the same words that might be used towards a woman in the street who's told her it's just street harassment, it's not a big deal. That same way of thinking about and describing women, that same language exactly comes up again in the stories of women who are being abused behind closed doors, illegally discriminated against in the workplace. So it's not saying that one of those words, someone hears it and they go out and immediately commit an assault. It's saying if we live in a society where we accept the small stuff, we live in a society where we accept that women are second class citizens. And that is a society by definition, where women are more likely to be seen as property by men and therefore more likely to experience domestic abuse and that all of these ideas are connected to the more serious issues that spring from them. I think a lot of people would be quite shocked by what's going on in politics. I think increasingly we're kind of aware of the fact that there is a crisis within policing and the fact that so many police officers have been accused of sexual misconduct, for example. But I think a lot of people don't recognise because we buy into this bad apple narrative 
these isolated incidents that are deliberately used to throw us off the track of recognizing a systemic problem. I think a lot of people would be really shocked to know that almost 10% of all our MPs are currently under investigation themselves for sexual misconduct. 56 MPs. I think that's really, really shocking, including former cabinet ministers. I think people have this kind of perception of the justice system and the court and Westminster as if they're sort of somehow immune or untouchable. And I think recognising that even within really institutions of power and systems of power that this form of inequality can exist is really important because otherwise it just flies under the radar. When it comes to gender inequality, most people can agree that we need to tackle obvious forms of discrimination, like sexual harassment and sexual assault. But this consensus doesn't always extend to the more covert forms of discrimination, like consistently devaluing women's contributions in a team meeting or only asking women on a team to take the notes. But we do have to appreciate the interrelationship between different forms of sexism and discriminatory systems. As Laura put it in a piece for The Guardian, it is vital to resist those who mock and criticise us for tackling minor manifestations of prejudice because these are the things that normalise and ingrain the treatment of women as second-class citizens, opening the door for everything else, from workplace discrimination to sexual violence. If we're going to solve inequality, we have to address the various ways that it shows up and work and the workplace is a really important part of this equation. It shows up so much at work and it's the place it's hardest for people to accept, actually, that it exists. When I started the project, I thought that the biggest category of entries we received would be from women in the streets because street harassment is so common. But the reality is that the single biggest number of entries we get is actually from women in the workplace. And it's also the place where I get the most pushback when I try to talk about it from men going, no, it doesn't happen at work. You know, there's, there's rules against that kind of thing. So what we see from those entries is that it shows up in very different ways. When we talk about gender inequality in the workplace, people tend to assume that you're talking about one very specific thing, essentially unwanted sexual advances or, or grabbing or touching. But the reality is that it comes in so many different forms. It might be inappropriate interview questions. It might be questions about family planning and childcare and assumptions that women won't be able to concentrate on the job. It might be maternity discrimination. So firing a woman because she gets pregnant and, oh, I'm sure that she won't be coming back. It might be questions about or comments about somebody's sex life, kind of just sort of uncomfortable things. It might be things that happen online. So it's not necessarily one colleague in person to another. It might be offsite at a conference. It might be a Christmas party. It might be client or customer facing experiences. And it can be much more subtle as well. It can be things like a meeting where the male clients shake hands with all the men in the room and just kind of pass over the female colleagues. It might be a meeting where somebody directs all of their questions to a junior male colleague, even though he's constantly turning to his senior female boss to ask her what the answers are. It might be a reverend in the Church of England who's just constantly being asked by parishioners if perhaps there's a man available to do the wedding or the funeral. It might be the assumption that women will always take the notes or be the ones to make the coffee and meetings and kind of pushing them into that secretarial role. It can be so subtle and it can be so varied. And I think that's what we have to recognise because I think a lot of people think, well, I've never seen a man push a woman up against the wall at work so nothing's going on here in my workplace and the reality of course is much more complex than that. To understand the different ways inequality shows up at work 
we have to start to see our differences and different lived experiences of inequality, as Laura explains. Those who live at the intersection of different forms of oppression, of course, experience them cumulatively. And again, in our society, we like to put things in neat separate boxes. You know, we'll have Black History Month here, and this is the Women's Network, and that's International Women's Day, and this is the panel about disability. But of course, that's not how people's lives happen when they are experiencing more than one form of prejudice. And so I think it can be so frustrating for those people when people think of those as completely separate. So we hear, for example, stories from a disabled woman who's been told to do a pole dance around her walking stick, a black woman who's waiting to give a keynote speech at a conference when people keep interrupting her preparations to ask her to show them to the bathroom or bring them refreshments, assuming that she's a member of staff at the venue, which isn't happening to her white female colleagues, or perhaps women who are in the street with their female partners when men chase after them, asking if they can videotape them or join in. So in terms of people's individual experiences, it's so important that we recognise these forms of oppression as intersecting. But it's also crucial when we're looking at the other end of the spectrum, at the system failings, when we're focusing on kind of institutional issues rather than individuals. Because there again, one of the institutions, for example, that I focus on in terms of the failings in this book, Fix the System, Not the Women, is, is the police and policing. And of course, you can't look at a system which is utterly failing women because, for example, just 1.4% of rape cases reported to the police result in a charge or summons without recognising that that is the same system in which black people are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. And the combined impact of that can be seen so clearly, for example, in the fact that when a black woman reports domestic abuse to the police, she is statistically dramatically less likely to see a positive outcome. So if we don't look at these things intersectionally, it, it fails all of us, not just the people who experience those multiple forms of abuse, but everybody, because if we create and build a system that works for the most vulnerable and the most minoritized groups in our society, it will inevitably be a good, robust system that works brilliantly for everybody else. And if we don't, then we're missing half the picture and we're leaving so many people behind and failing them. So, for example, if you want to tackle the fact that one in four women in the UK faces domestic abuse, which is a shocking statistic, you also need to know that that number rises to one in two for disabled women. And that has a trickle down effect institutionally when, for example, one in five women in the UK is disabled, but only one in 10 refuge spaces are accessible. So if the kind of frontline service provision and the institutional solutions that we're putting in place don't recognise those intersections, then they won't be fit for purpose. When it comes to solving inequality, one of the comments I often hear, particularly from men, is that it's just going to take time. Gender inequality will be solved with the passing of time. As people become more and more progressive in their views on women's rights, inequality will slowly disappear. Unfortunately, as shared in many other episodes, this simply isn't supported by research. And here Laura explains why equality is never achieved without action. Obviously, we are making progress in many ways, and that's brilliant, and I'm not dismissing that. But I think what's really dangerous is this assumption that these ideas are 
only held by older generations and they will kind of naturally sort of just fizzle out because all the evidence suggests the opposite. In the papers just this week, there's some really alarming news about men under 30 having more hostile attitudes towards feminism than ever before. Every year, the British Attitude Survey asks the general public if they think a woman is partially or fully to blame for having been raped if she was flirting or drinking beforehand. And bad enough amongst the general population that a third thinks she was to blame if she'd been flirting and a quarter if she'd been drinking. But what's really concerning is that amongst the youngest age group that's polled, which I think is 18 to 24, those numbers spike much higher. And I think we know where this is coming from, which is that there is a particular new form of a very virulent online backlash, which is resulting really in a kind of radicalization, a kind of male supremacist extremism online, which is very deliberately targeted at and recruiting boys as young as 10 using online gaming platforms and bodybuilding websites and forums and memes and cultural touch points. And I see the effect of it very specifically in my work with schools. I go into around two schools a week all over the country and I meet boys every week who will honestly just completely believe that the gender pay gap is a myth. The Me Too movement is a witch hunt gone too far. White men are the real victims of today's society. Men everywhere are losing their jobs because of women making up malicious allegations and there's no due process and most rape allegations are false. And those are really common, very extreme views. What's particularly heartbreaking about that is that there is so much that young men are facing and that we do need to support them about, but we're so focused on demonizing and creating this kind of completely fake witch hunt against feminism that, for example, we're not focusing on things like male survivors of sexual violence, even though the figures show that a man in the UK is 230 times more likely to be raped himself than to be falsely accused of rape. So it's sort of doubly heartbreaking. But yes, I think it's a real problem. And I think what's particularly concerning is that at the moment, it's completely under the radar because we don't describe hatred of women as a form of extremism. We don't describe it as terrorism, even when it does cross over the threshold of men going offline and massacring women explicitly in its name. And we don't describe the recruitment of young men into those ideologies as grooming or radicalization. And what that means is that it makes it 10 times more dangerous because it's going completely unchallenged. Inequality won't be solved with the passing of time. It's going to take action. And from all of us, this includes the person who's listening to this episode thinking, what can I do? I know that there'll be some people listening who will think, but I don't have that power. You know, I'm not a manager or I'm not a senior partner. And I had a great example from a man in the workplace of a way that he used his own power just in the situation he was in. So he had a a female colleague who started at the same time as him and they were both very junior. And he had been kind of gradually working his way, having different kind of opportunities, being invited to join different projects. She was being asked to make the coffee and take the notes in every single meeting. And she was kind of being siloed into this kind of secretarial sort of portrayal of her and wasn't having the same opportunities. But he said, it was difficult for me because I wasn't a powerful person in the company at all. You know, I was very junior too. And I knew she didn't want to complain. So it wasn't like I could report it because I knew that she was worried about backlash. So I felt, you know, there's nothing I can do. And then he realized that even in that relatively powerless position, there was something he could do just within his own gift. And he started turning up at the meetings a couple of minutes early and making the coffee. And he started just taking the notes. And I know it sounds really simple, but actually it made a very big difference to her. So I think thinking about the little ways that each of us can shift things in our own immediate environment can make a big difference and perhaps we realise as well. 
I really hope you all found this conversation with Laura as insightful as I did. Discussions like this can feel overwhelming, but there's always something we can do to affect positive change. Yes, gender inequality is a systemic issue, but it's created through the beliefs, the behaviours and the interactions that we each engage in, which means that we have the power collectively to dismantle it. In our conversation with Laura, she shared that one of the most important actions we can take is to raise our voices and demand that the system needs to change. Too often, inequality is taken for granted as just the way things are. But when we question it and call it out, we raise awareness of what needs to change. For example, Laura shared that the Centre for Women's Justice is running a campaign where they're pushing for a statutory inquiry into misogyny within policing. So that's something that all of us can choose to support and to lend our voices to. Laura says that within the workplace, each of us can focus on systemic and institutional changes rather than blaming individuals or simply focusing on individuals when things happen. Dismantling inequality will take small, consistent acts from all of us. And this means there's always something we can do today and indeed every day. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I know the topic we covered today is a particularly difficult one to listen to, but given that sexual abuse and assault affects so many women, it's absolutely important that all of us take action. If you want to show your support for our work, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out our website, www.thefixpodcast.org, and sign up to our monthly newsletter. You can also contribute your story there. Thanks again for your support, and I'll catch you all again next week.